0: We're going to share a message this morning entitled, How to Seek Like Jesus. It's the third part in our Before All Things series, and I God directed me to this account of an interaction between uh, the chief of sinners and the chief of love, and what happened um, when their paths unexpectedly crossed in Luke chapter 19. Um, there is definitely racial tension in this story. Uh, it's... It comes out in the tension that already existed between the the Italians and the Jews, and then interracial tension between uh, Jewish people and other Jewish people that they saw as traitors who had sold sold their own countrymen out to find favor with the the Italians. And there was deep-seated resentment even within the Jewish ethnic community at this time um, from a specific group of people and so i want to do the very best i can as efficiently as i can of drawing out some of that tension because uh if you and i had the benefit of growing up jewish or really understanding the history that goes behind this story it would it would be much more shocking than it reads to us many of us who are westerners this morning so i want to do the best that i can to bring that out to you this story also contains what many theologians call the quintessential verse of the gospels definitely the The theme verse or the summary statement for all of the Gospel of Luke and perhaps many theologians agree to be the one sentence summary of Jesus's entire life and so there's a lot packed into this story but there's some really if you'll listen carefully to this story it will challenge you it will transform you and it will once again demonstrate to you the depth of the grace and the mercy that Jesus Christ has towards us as sinners I love how honest Billy was in that video. He says, when I come to church, I come recognizing that I'm a sinner. And, uh, you know, as the song says, uh, I'm a sinner, but I'm saved by grace. You know, I don't stop considering myself being a sinner even after I follow Christ. I think that's an unfortunate stereotype. A lot of Christians view people who aren't Christians. They say they're the sinners and we're not friends. We are also sinners, but we are those who say we have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. We haven't been saved because we cleaned ourselves up. We haven't been saved because we broke a lot of habits. We haven't been saved because we stopped cussing or stopped smoking or stopped whatever it was that we just used a lot of self-discipline and we got clean enough for God to love us. You can't get clean enough to earn God's love. His love isn't earned, it's given freely. And this story reminds us Not only of the transforming power of the grace and the mercy that Jesus has towards the worst of sinners, but also the natural response that someone's life takes on when they've really been changed by an encounter with Jesus. So Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, I'll be reading from the New Living Translation as soon as the dots in front of my eyes stop. Here we go. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, come quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He, speaking of Jesus, has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord, and if I've cheated people on their taxes, I'll give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. And here's this quintessential verse of the Gospels. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. If this is what Jesus came to do, and this is what Jesus through the Holy Spirit is still doing, and you and I are being His imitators, then what ought you and I be doing? We ought to be actively seeking out lost people that we currently do not have relationship with. And those who we do have a relationship with who happen to be lost, we ought to be involved somehow actively in the process of seeing them saved. The big idea is simply this. Jesus still seeks those who are lost, and so should we. Jesus still seeks those who are lost, and so should we. I want you to be very clear in understanding this. Advance is not about us building a better mousetrap so that you and I can be more comfortable and do less work and pat ourselves on the back and get warm fuzzies for something good that we did. It is simply about positioning ourselves to no longer be capped by the number of people, the number of men, women, boys, girls, teens and tweens that we can reach on a Sunday morning. It's about us positioning ourselves to have a bigger barn, to be able to receive a bigger harvest of people we're not currently reaching. It's about us being able to now say we can be more effective and more aggressive in reaching the lost. The Son of Man has not stopped seeking lost people. That's what He is all about. And if that's what He's about, that's what we need to be about. Individually, as a church family, and as Christians all over the world, we are all united in this effort to seek and to save those who are lost. So back to the story. At the time of this story, the Jews are not really in charge of Israel and Palestine. Do you remember who's in charge at this time? Rome. If you think back a few weeks ago, we went into great detail about the Roman government. And if you want to go catch up on some of that work that we did, some of that discussion that we had, it's, it's online uh, on our website, echochurchonline.com. On the media page, you can go back to the Killing Jesus series, especially the first part. But to to lift out from that a few details that are important, the Roman Empire had conquered Israel at this point, and they were the governing authority. And with them, they brought the quote-unquote benefits of being in the Roman Empire to every territory that they ruled over. They brought good infrastructure, they brought good roads, they brought aqueducts and better ways of carrying water back and forth, they brought technology, but they had to finance that somehow. And so they brought with them a system called taxation. Taxes. How many of you just look forward to paying your taxes? Yeah. It would be a far different story if we took away all the benefits and advantages we have from our taxes and put that money back in our pockets. I know we all disagree about what should be taxed, what shouldn't be taxed, how much it should be taxed, and I'm not trying to go down that road this morning I'm not uh, educated enough to speak into some of those areas I will tell you that God's system for the Jews wasn't taxation it was tithes and offerings and when they were honoring the Lord and obeying the Lord and they were living right before him and they weren't in danger of being conquered by other nations because God was for them they were able to fund all of the needs of their nation by giving to the Lord through their tithes through their offerings uh, through different uh, benevolent acts and giving to the poor and meeting all those different needs. But now that Rome came along, they believed in taxation. And you have to understand, taxes, were, the, were that was the water that floated the Roman Empire. That income was the lifeblood. That was the fuel that made it go. Taxation was big business for the Romans. And you have to understand how they went about Collecting those taxes—that was also a big business—that became kind of a a mob racket. What they did was they divided up the entire Roman territory into, uh, or the entire Roman Empire into tax territories, jurisdictions, local geographies, and towns and municipalities that were classified as tax districts. And what they did was they subbed out ownership of those tax districts to entrepreneurs. In other words, you could franchise out a tax, they franchised out all the tax districts to individuals, usually Romans, who would pay Rome for the right to have that jurisdiction. So if I wanted to, as a Roman, if I were wealthy enough, I could negotiate a deal with the Roman government to have the Perry Hall tax district. What Rome would get out of it is a specific amount of money that they figured that that area should contribute. So I agreed to pay Rome X and then in perpetuity I gave them Y, the tax that they wanted to collect. What was in it for me was I could decide how my jurisdiction was taxed. I could decide how we collected it and I could inflate that number to profit myself. And so it was big business to be a chief tax collector. The title given to the person who was in charge of that district was called a chief tax collector. Now, let's make this uh, more germane to this story. One of the prime tax territories, if not the prime tax territory, was the city of Jericho. The city of Jericho was one of the most lucrative franchise opportunities in the Roman taxation system for several reasons. They already had a customs office there. They were one of the most fertile areas. And you have to understand the Romans had a plethora of taxes. They had a poll tax that every male aged 14 or over had to pay and every female age 12 or over had to pay just for the privilege of being in the Roman Empire. They had a property tax that everybody had to pay who owned property, and the Jews had property. So they taxed every square inch of land. There was an agricultural tax. So if you had fertile farmland, you paid a tax for every item you sold or every item you bought in agriculture. There was an import tax. There was an export tax. And Jericho happened to be geographically situated on the main road connecting Joppa to Jerusalem. So all the slave trade went through there. Their bustling market system because of all the agriculture was there. So they had import, export, property tax, agricultural tax. If you wanted to get rich as a Roman, you bought the rights for the Jericho tax jurisdiction. But occasionally, a Roman didn't buy the rights. Occasionally, a wealthy enough Jew who didn't feel any loyalty to his fellow countrymen, but motivated by greed, would strike a deal and be in cahoots with the Romans. And that person would scrape together enough funds to become the chief tax collector for a region. And Luke tells us that's what happened in Jericho. Luke tells us about the Jericho tax racket that was run by a kingpin by the name of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, Luke tells us, was a Jewish man who was not just a tax collector, but was the chief tax collector for Jericho. He was the man who struck a deal with Rome to have the rights to the Jericho tax franchise. And so you had a chief tax collector, and then you had a tax collector, and here's how it worked. The chief tax collector wasn't the guy that went and knocked on the doors and collected the taxes. He just decided how much should be taxed He collected the money, pocketed the profits, and sent the rest to keep the Roman coffers full. He employed other tax collectors. And even Roman tax collectors employed Jewish people. So that's how it worked. You had Rome who got taxes. You had the chief tax collector who made sure the right amount was collected and pocketed the difference. And then you had the tax collectors who got good jobs getting their cut of the excess they collected. They worked for the chief tax collector. So at the time of this story, most historians would agree, Zacchaeus was likely the wealthiest man in all of Jericho and the most hated man in all of Jericho. Because Jericho is populated by Jewish people. Zacchaeus is also a Jew. The Jewish people's lives were very, very, very hard at this time because they were being taxed left and right. And there was a good deal going on if you were Zacchaeus. Because guess what? If you didn't like Your tax bill, well, go take it up with Rome. If you decided not to pay your tax bill, guess what? Roman soldiers were going to come and visit you. And the Roman soldiers were pretty good at making people's lives miserable. So Zacchaeus, knowingly, is coercing and extorting and stealing money from his own countrymen to fill his own pockets. While they're struggling, he's profiting. He was hated. He was the chief sinner. He was the chief of white collar crime. He was one of the first mob bosses in history. And in this particular story, the chief of sinners one morning crosses paths with the chief of love. And you know what happens? Love wins. Love wins. Because Jesus was seeking Zacchaeus, even though Zacchaeus wasn't really seeking Jesus. So, this morning, if we're going to walk out of here today feeling like we're any more like Jesus than we were when we walked in, we need to learn how to seek like Jesus. I'm going to give you three things. Three things we see in this story. If you want to seek like Jesus, first thing you need to do is take the initiative. You need to take the initiative. Verse 1 says, Jesus entered Jericho and was making his way through the town. This is the stuff you and I usually skip, but to me, this is the crux of the whole story. Jericho was not Jesus' destination. Jericho was simply a rest stop in the middle of his travel itinerary. You know where Jesus was really headed? He was headed to Jerusalem for the Passover and to lay his life down at Calvary. This is his final trip to Jerusalem, knowing that he's marching to the Last Supper, to the garden, to Caiaphas, to Herod, to Pilate, and ultimately to his death. He was trying to pass through the town of Jericho. He didn't go to Jericho looking for Zacchaeus, but right in the middle of his busy day, an opportunity presents itself, doesn't it? I will tell you, the most opportunities you and I have to reach people will not happen because you were looking for it. It will come and find you. Jesus did not wait for Zacchaeus to come and find him. He was passing through the town. It was not his final destination. We cannot miss the fact that this entire story is an interruption to his day. How many opportunities do you think you and I have missed simply because we were unwilling to let our day be interrupted? Verse 3 says Zacchaeus tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short. You see, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. How of a wee little man was he? Well, in Mediterranean terms, a short man was someone who was five feet or less. I also want to be crystal clear. There is absolutely no indication in this story or anywhere else in the Gospels that Zacchaeus had ever met Jesus or that he had any clue who he was. Nor do we have any indication that Jesus had ever met Zacchaeus. That's important to understand the story. Zacchaeus didn't know who he was looking for. It says he saw there was a commotion and he got curious enough that the wealthiest man, the most hated man, in all of Jericho decides to climb up a tree to get a better look at what's going on. How embarrassing for the most powerful man in the city to be found hanging from a tree. Not in that way, but you know, like climbing a tree and sitting there. He's curious. He's not looking for Christ. He's looking for an answer to his curiosity. And yet underneath all that, God's using his curiosity to draw him to Christ. God is still drawing people to himself. And they don't necessarily look like the lost people you might picture in your mind. They may look like a guy who thinks he has it all together like Zacchaeus. He tried to get a look at Jesus. He sees a crowd forming, and because he was little, he climbs up a sycamore fig tree to get a better look. Verse 4 says this, When Jesus came by, he looked up. Zacchaeus didn't seek out Jesus. He didn't even know who Jesus was. Something drew him to what's going on. He wasn't seeking Jesus. He was seeking an answer to his curiosity. But even though Zacchaeus wasn't seeking Jesus, Jesus was willing to seek him. He easily could have passed right by that sycamore fig tree and never stopped and looked up. But the key thing to me, he is in the middle of his day. His eye is focused on the next item of his to-do list. And for some reason, he stops and he looks up. The way you and I should stop and look up when the server comes to our table. The way you and I should stop and look up when we're outside working and the mailman stops to hand you his mail. The way you and I should look up when we're checking out at the grocery store and the person asks you how you're doing and you're more concerned about your coupons and that they don't crush the eggs than what's right in front of us. When you go through the drive through window to get your third coffee of the day, will you stop and will you look up? Amen. Well, pastor, I don't have any opportunities to reach your loss. Hogwash, you do. They're right in front of you. You know, the problem, we're too busy. We're too busy. Jesus was on an assignment. Well, pastor, I have important things to do. You think dying on the cross for your sins was important? That's what he was on his way to do, but he stopped He looked up. He didn't wait for Zacchaeus to call down to him. He didn't wait for Zacchaeus to get religiously curious. He looks up and I don't know what happened in that moment. I don't know if Jesus relied on his omniscience that he knew everything and saw something in Zacchaeus' eyes that said to him, this man has a unique window in his life right now and if he's ever going to be changed, it's going to be now. Don't miss it. Or if there was some cue from the crowd. But Jesus recognized something about Zacchaeus. I'm sure he wasn't the only person up in a tree that day. I'm sure he wasn't the only person that was trying to crane his neck to get a look at Jesus. But for some reason, when they lock eyes, Jesus takes initiative. He looks at this well dressed, wealthy, powerful, white collar guy. And something in his heart says, he's being drawn. He's being drawn. Friends, you realize that if you added the population of White Marsh and Kearney and Parkville, Nottingham, Perry Hall together, you get 99,800 people, almost 100,000 people according to the last census. Do you realize the average median income around here according to that census is $84,000 per household? Do you realize that 90% of the residents of this community indicated they have some level of post-secondary education? When asked if they have a religious affiliation at all, that doesn't mean are you actively attending your church. It's just saying if you had to put yourself in a category, what would you put? 19% of that 99,000 and change say, I identify as Catholic. 18% of that population say, I identify as Protestant. That's taking the five major branches of Protestant of which we would be one. There's 18% that say that. Uh, What was the most recent? 57.8% of the people say, I have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And that number's up in Baltimore County by 160,000 people over the last 10 years. When you think of the lost people in our neighborhoods, a lot of times you and I think of people like what I ran into in isolated villages in Paraguay. Kids dying of AIDS, being sequestered in the jungle because, and they have never seen a white person before. They're hopeless, they're broken, they're in poverty. And you present the gospel to them and they grab onto it because they see their own brokenness. They feel like there's something missing. When you talk to people who feel like they only have a few weeks to live or a few months to live or they work in a job where they feel like their life's in danger all the time, Those are the people, they might be a little bit open to the gospel. The people who recognize, I am a sinner. I am broken. I can't fix myself. Those people are acceptable for the gospel. Do you know what? It's difficult to go out into this community where these people may, where we say these are lost people, but we don't think of them as lost. It's not the person that we look at, because how do you reach the person who's got a pretty good life? How do you reach the person in our community who may live in a $400,000 home with two cars in their driveway? They've got a job that's paying them pretty well. They work 50 hours a week, and their life is filled with more. They schedule all. schedule every moment of their life together. They're too busy. We've got 100,000 people who make an average of $84,000 a year, 60% of whom say, I have no religious identification, and every single one of them seems to be in an angry hurry all the time. It's hard to stop and have a conversation with someone about the afterlife in Perry Hall. It's it's hard to slow people down long enough at T-ball to talk to them about the condition of their soul and if they recognize their own brokenness. Here's my question, how are you and I going to reach another soul in this culture of people that are too busy, who have it all together, but at the same time, most of whom claim they have no religious affiliation, how are we going to do that if you and I are in the same angry hurry? We're in this world, we're in this area, and it tells you you're not working enough, you're not earning enough, you're not spending enough, you don't have enough. And it's telling you that if you just do a little bit more, on the other side of that, you'll have the life you always wanted. And the gospel says you already can have the life you already wanted, and it doesn't come by doing more. It comes by receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But if you and I have not been transformed by that, we're in the same angry hurry, how credible is our testimony? You and I have to come to a place where we learn like Christ that even though we have an assignment and that assignment is important, there are going to be intersections in your life where you need to recognize God is drawing somebody and you happen to be right there on the road and we need to stop and look up and take the initiative. This building that we're going to get into is not going to take the initiative for us. That building's not going to save a soul. That awesome new kids area that we're going to design isn't going to save a soul. It's just a tool for us to have intersections with people. That's all that it is. If you want to seek like Jesus, we can't be in the same angry hurry the rest of Baltimore County is. We have to be able to stop and look up in mid-assignment to be able to make use of those opportunities. I've been too long on that point. Number two, be personal. Verse five, be personal. He looked up, and here's a stunner. If you were standing there, this would have shocked everybody. He calls Zacchaeus by name. They'd never met i don't know if someone tipped jesus off or if again he was using his omniscience it doesn't matter what it would have said what the jews believed is that if an individual came up that you had never met and called somebody by their correct name it meant they were a prophet that's what would have shocked zacchaeus enough to follow suit it wasn't enough that he stopped and he looked up jesus wasn't just looking for anybody in a tree he was looking for zacchaeus how can i make this point in 45 seconds Jesus did not come to the earth and stand on the tallest mountain and get a megaphone and preach the gospel and then go to the cross. He didn't just throw the gospel out there hoping somebody would get it. He went to individuals. He went to a guy named Matthew when he was at work as a tax collector. Not the chief tax collector, but an employee of the chief tax collector. And he says, leave everything and follow me, Matthew. And he left. He went to... Peter and Andrew. He says, leave your business and come follow me. And they left. He went to James and John. He said, leave what you're doing and come and follow me. He went to Philip as he's thinking deep thoughts under a tree. Come and follow me. You see, God doesn't want us to just stand here on Sunday morning and say, you know what? We preach the gospel. We put it online. Hopefully somebody will get it. He's sending us to people like my neighbor Spencer. Spencer. My neighbor Jenny, my neighbor Ryan, my new friends JD and Christy, my family members Kathy and Tom and Ben and Alex. He cares for them individually. And a lot of the times, these messages on reaching the lost lose its application to us because when we think of the lost, we think of the billions, we think of the 57.8%. I just said those numbers are so big and so impersonal, they don't move anybody. Stop thinking about the big numbers. Who is in your circle right now that doesn't know Christ? There's probably a dozen people in your life that you're pretty tight with right now, give or take a few. Who in that circle doesn't know Christ? Those are the people that should burn in our heart. Those are the people that are personal. They have names. Well, pastor, there's nobody in my dozen. Then get to seeking. Then get to seeking. There's nobody in my circle that doesn't know Jesus. They're all saved. friend, you and I need to be about seeking, not just saving. Seeking usually precedes saving. Then ask God, put somebody in my circle and watch how he answers that one. I didn't go and beg God to send me to different people. I walked across the hedges and met my neighbor. He is lost. Lost. He told me he's lost. It was easy. He just said he was. There's people doing some work at my house right now. One of them said, let me take those trees down for you. I said, please don't. He said, well, please don't. You touch them. I, was like, I, I said, my neighbor came to me the other day and said he wants to take those trees down with me and how fellas are you start taking a tree down with someone to do a project you walk life together i believe that that deck they're building at my house right now is going to be the place where i lead my neighbor to jesus but i have to seek him he's making progress or in that same conversation about trees i said i've been praying about you finding a job he bought the house next to me and then uh that week he lost his job he's been looking he's been drawing unemployment he says it was a friday that we were talking two fridays ago and he says to me he says it's funny you say that my unemployment runs out today and just this morning i got a call offering me a full-time job i start on monday i said man that's awesome i've been praying about that he goes it's funny yeah i said i know you've been praying about that he's like i have to kind of admit it does kind of seem like this is all just magically coming together i said well potato potato man I like you I was like, it's easier for me to believe that God was involved in magic, but you know, that's that's where I come from. He's curious. But if I'm a terrible neighbor, and if he sees me running around in the backyard yelling at my kids, he sees a different part of me than most of you don't see. I am aware, I live my life every day with a keen awareness of the influence, whether I think I should have it or not, the influence I have on somebody. I'm probably the best Christian he knows. I don't believe God sent me there. I don't even believe that he was looking for God, but I believe God's looking for him. So it's one of the two of us needs to be seeking and I'm going to take on at least 60% of that responsibility. Be personal. Take the initiative. There's a lot more on that point. We'll leave it for the next time we talk about Zacchaeus eight years from now. Number three, expect a response. Because here's the reality. I know There's two different types of listeners here this morning. You're listening this morning through the lens of you are saved and you have been transformed by Jesus. Or you're listening through the lens of curiosity. If you're this deep into the message, you're still curious. Whether you're listening on Facebook this morning, whether you're watching the podcast later on, whether you're listening to the audio of it, or whether you're sitting here today, here's what I want you to know. Here's what Jesus wanted Zacchaeus to know, and this is what transformed him. If you think, man, I really am a sinner, how can Jesus save somebody like me? Can he save me personally? Well, if you are sitting here today saying, you know what, I'm a sinner. I'm somebody who has lived without any regard for God. If you say, I recognize that I'm broken, and no matter how hard I've tried, there's just parts of me I can't fix. If you say, you talk about being like Jesus, I don't even know what that means, but I'm pretty sure that I'm not exactly like he is. Friend, if that's what you're saying, then Jesus came to personally save you. He came for sinners. He came for broken people. He came for the imperfect. He came for the ungodly. He came for you. He will absolutely, certainly save you. And He'll do it right now. If, on the other hand, you would say things like, well, you know, I hear what you're saying, and I have my faults, but hey, I'm only human. I'm not lost. If you say I'm... I'm human, but I'm not a sinner. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm certainly not a sinner. That's for rapists and pornographers and murderers and Yankees and other people like that. Red Sox, you know. Sorry, Moses. If you say, I've done plenty of wrong things, but I wouldn't call myself ungodly, then friend, Jesus probably won't mean much to you because you don't think you need a Savior. I am the one who says, I am broken, I am imperfect, I am ungodly, I need a savior, and he has come and he has saved Phil Nauer, and friend, he has come to save you too. If you're this far into the message, you might think you're just curious or whatever, God is drawing you to his son. God is drawing you to his son beneath The white collar beneath the nice house, beneath everything that looks right. You know what the Bible says? God is drawing you. It's more than just curiosity. There's something about his son that's drawing you just like it drew Zacchaeus. And when Jesus said, come down, he responded. He responded quickly, the Bible says. Jesus didn't say, you know what? I'm going to go take care of a few things and then I'll come back. And if you're still interested, I'll talk to you. Friend, if you feel God drawing, you don't wait another hour. Don't wait another day. Respond quickly. And guys, when you are opening your life up to people and you are in that moment, respond. expect them to respond quickly. Expect them to respond with obedience. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down and he came down. If you come to Christ, do understand he demands our obedience. He demands us to listen you can't come to Christ and say I'm still gonna do I want a hybrid relationship where I get you and I get what I want to do too that's not Lordship if you really believe he is who he says he is then obedience is not a problem because obedience is where all the blessing all the peace none of the anxiety lives in obedience he responded with joy I'm just feeling terrible and awful. Listen, let me give you some good news. You don't have to anymore. The Bible says Zacchaeus invited Jesus into his house with joy. The only time in the gospel Jesus ever invited himself somewhere. He was always the invitee, not the inviter. But yet he breaks protocol here and he says, I must be with you today. I must come to your house. And there's a whole other message in that. Again, we'll save it for the Zacchaeus series later on. But friend, expect a response when people are close to Christ. Expect that they're going to respond with haste. Expect that they'll respond with obedience. Expect that they'll respond with joy. And the last thing I'm say: expect that they will respond with repentance. You know, somewhere, there's a part of the story we don't get. I want to know someday the transcript of the conversation at Zacchaeus' house. It skips that part in the story. Jesus says, come down, I need to stay at your house. Luke tells us he got down from the tree quickly. He was excited. He was filled with joy. The prophet who knew his name wants to come hang out with him. None of the other Jews wanted to reach him. They all thought he was unreachable. They hated him because of what he stood for. You and I still have to hate, we still have to reach the people that we hate because of what they stand for, friends. And our little, I'll leave that, sorry. I know you want me to come on, but I'm going to stay right there on that one. You you may need more than just your little monologue on facebook to reach them it's not bad to have your platform and say what you believe i've never knocked that but understand that may in and of itself not be enough it may need some personal it may need some initiative facebook we're speaking to the masses sometimes beyond that we need this okay but he called him down from the tree he went to his house and the next we know that the people were upset about this because you know in the jewish world This guy was an absolute sinner. And if you were going to keep yourself clean, the Pharisee says you don't eat what sinners eat because they're not tithing and you can't trust the meal they're putting out. And if you touch it, you're ceremonially unclean. So now they're all upset. This guy who thinks he's a prophet because he knew him by name, this guy who claims to be who he says that he is, is now eating with unclean people. And with him. And the very next thing that we see, we don't know the conversation. I don't know what worship songs are saying. I don't know how the service ended. No idea. All I know is that the very next thing that comes out of Zacchaeus's mouth is this. He says, "I have sinned. I repent. I used to cheat, I used to steal, I used to commit extortion, and now I'm changing my mind about all those activities. I think they're wrong. And now I'm going to do the opposite," he says. Confession. Repentance. I'm going to give 50% of my income to the poor. And everybody that I've cheated, I'm going to repay them a multiple of four times the amount that I swindled from them. That may not be, let me help you make that more uh, meaningful. Why it really perked the Jews ears here is because the Mosaic law covers what you're supposed to do in terms of your income to the poor. And the Mosaic law told Jews exactly what they should do if they were guilty of stealing money. The Mosaic Law said all of, your, of all your income, 20% is to go to the poor. 20%. You know what he says? I'm going to give 50%. He's not giving 50% to earn salvation. He's giving 50% as a response to receiving salvation. The Mosaic Law said if you've stolen financially from someone, you have to repay them and double what you stole you have to repay them two times he says I want to do the opposite I can't live with the thought of all the sin that I've committed I'm going to do what the law says but I'm going to double it instead of just paying everybody back twice I'm going to pay them back four times this is the transformation of a man I don't know what Jesus said all I know is that a little face-to-face time with Jesus transformed Zacchaeus And I wish we knew what happened next. All I could find, there is one extra biblical historical source called the Homilies of of Clementine, uh, the Clementinian Homilies. Uh, Nice light reading. But it's the only place we can find Zacchaeus in history after that. And here's what they say He ultimately became a a traveling companion of the Apostle Peter and served as the Bishop of Caesarea. Not in the Bible. Take it with a grain of salt. But the one place we find him, he's still serving the kingdom of God, and he exchanged the wealth of the world for being wealthy in God's kingdom. This is what happens when somebody will slow down from their angry hurry long enough to recognize God's drawing a sinner to repentance. And they will use that moment not for the turn or the burn or for this or for that or the other, but to. Show them the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ that resulted in deep life change. So as our worship team comes, just two questions. Friend, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you today based on this passage in Luke? What's he saying to you about taking initiative, about being personal, about expecting and preparing for a response? What is he saying to you personally about that? Is he drawing you, friend, into a relationship with Jesus? Are you somebody who says that I identify with Zacchaeus? I'm the person, if you looked at me on the outside, I've got it all together. I have a place to live. I have a career. I have an education. I don't feel like I'm missing out on life until I look at it through this lens and I say, now that I think about it deeply enough, I am missing something. I am lost. All those things in and of themselves are not satisfying the deepest part of my soul. Even the best education, the most money and a nice house and two cars and whatever, I, whatever it is that I have, I recognize that I still crave for more and I think that maybe the more I have, it still won't satisfy that. There must be something more and it is, it is Jesus. And yes, He wants you to hear this message for you specifically, my brother, my sister. He's drawing you Today. He's not asking you to pay double taxes or to give 10% to your church or to do a whole bunch of good things in order for him to love you. He just wants you to accept him and surrender to him and confess him as your Lord and Savior. And what I can promise you is that he will transform you and you will find yourself out of the joy of your heart doing all kinds of good things that people without Jesus can do, but you'll be doing it for a different reason. It'll be coming from a different place. People without Christ do those things to feel better about themselves to try and save themselves. People with Christ do it out of an overflow of love. They do it because they get to. It's not a weight, it's light, it's easy. And Echo, what do you think God is saying to us as a church today about this? I think some of the things that he's saying to us is to not expect that this building we're going to build is going to do the work of reaching the lost for us. It's just simply a tool for us to use. I think he's reminding us not to think that when we move into this building, we're going to drop a lot of confetti and we've finally arrived. We've got a big assignment and it's seeking the saving the lost. Nor do we have the luxury of assuming we have 24 months till we have this building to reach your neighbor. If God brings a harvest, we'll figure it out. My job is to prepare you to leave this place knowing that your assignment begins the moment we say amen today. Your assignment of seeking and saving those who are lost. Let me pray over you today as our worship team plays quietly. I'll invite our prayer team to come. They're going to take their places across the front. I want to speak to those who say I need to make the same declaration that Zacchaeus did. I'm ready right now in this moment to have a relationship with Jesus. I'm ready for my life to be transformed. I want to lead you in a prayer of confession. This is all you have to do. This is your one and only next step. You say a prayer that says, Dear Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died on the cross and that you rose again from the dead. And you did all of that to pay off my debt to your father. Today, I want to take you up on your offer. And I accept the payment you've made on my behalf for my brokenness, for my sins, for my disobedience. I choose to obey you. I choose to acknowledge you as the Lord. Lord and I receive you into me thank you for seeking me personally thank you for saving me ultimately I am so ready to be changed and transformed nothing is missing I'm complete in you in your name I pray amen Heavenly Father, the rest of us here who are right with you today, will you once again remind us to seek specifically, not just all the lost in the world, but the specific lost people that you have allowed us to have in our circle. For those who we think are completely unsavable, will you give us just a little bit more hope today? You have not given up on them, and so we won't lord for those in our circle who are curious in your drawing will you heighten our awareness for how we can be part of the harvest process in their life help us to be sensitive to where the lost people in our lives are with respect to you deliver us from the world that says we must be busy all the time liberate us from the pressure of feeling every moment with activity because it becomes an obstacle to us seizing moments and intersections when we need to stop what we're doing and look up knowing that you'll give us the time to finish that journey when we need to when you come to find echo may you find us busy seeking and saving lost people we may not we may not have the most dynamite graphics and logos we may not have the best preaching in the world we may not have the most uh, fashion friendly pastor we may not have a lot of things But may we be found faithful in the work of seeking and saving the lost.